Did anyone ever read a book called The Peterkin Papers? Be a miracle if somebody did. Uh, somebody write it down and look it up on look it up in Google and see if you can find it. It's called The Peterkin Papers, and Peterkin, P-T-E-R-K-I-N. I have I don't remember the author, but in third grade maybe. I read the Peterkin papers at school, got out of the school library, and we had a period at school where everybody went to the library and read their book. You picked out a book, and then you sat in the library and read it. And I read that book, and I thought it was hysterical. It was so funny. And I, I couldn't read it without laughing. And I got rebuked continually for laughing and making noise in the library. But it was impossible to read the book and not laugh. So now it's, I was third grade, so I was not even 10, I was 8 or something. So it's 75 years later, and I can remember that what was, and this is why I remember the Peterkin Papers right now, because in the first story in the Peterkin Papers, this family named Peterkin, they moved to a new, uh, they moved to a new home, and the movers bring their furniture in. And uh, they placed the upright piano, instead of putting its back to the wall, they put its front to the wall. So, of course, there was no way to sit at the piano and play because it was pushed against the wall. Except for the obvious response that you could make if you thought about it. But they all thought about it and they decided that what Elizabeth Eliza had to do to practice the piano, where she would have to sit out on the porch with the window open and play from the outside in. It's hysterical, isn't it? (laughs) So, 75 years ago, I read that. (laughs) Or 73 years ago, I read that in the third grade in the library. And it stayed in my mind as the exemplar par excellence of doing things in a more complicated way. So, so we could move all of you forward, or I could move down. And this was way easier. So that's the whole story. So did anybody look that up on Google? The Peterkin Papers? Wasn't there. No, couldn't find it. Couldn't find it? No. What? Anyway, there we go. So I'll look it up later if I remember. But um, <laughs> Okay, my name is Sylvia. How many of us have not met before? Ever. Whoa, that's a lot of people. So let's start here. What's your name? Rucker. Hmm? Rucker. Is your first name? That's a great name. Is that a family name? Do you like it? Did... <laughs> Did did you like it going to grade school, or did people? No. <laughs> One of my daughter's middle names is Valya. She's named for a Russian grandmother, and she says it's such a lucky thing that you didn't name me that for a first name, because it would have been terrible. It's a lovely name. Rucker is also a lovely name. Where do you live? Oh, I'm glad you came. Come again. Who else? Yeah. And where do you live? Oh, good. That was a long ride this morning. 
not too bad. We used to come at 9 o'clock in the morning, and then it was really hard for people to get here on time. So I'm glad you're here. Did you come together? You have a relationship with each other? Are you friends? Welcome. Who else? Lynn. I'm Tia's mother from Boston. Oh, that's great. Well, I'm glad to meet you again. You had a really rough winter, didn't you? Well, this year hasn't been bad. It was 60 degrees today, I think. Uh-huh. But More than here. Yeah, and it was uh, 10 below in January 3rd, and a week later it was 50. So it's definitely climate change. Are your plants all confused? Do the yes. bulbs start to come out of the ground? Yeah. Yeah, everything is confused. There you go. Um, my friend Nancy Flam is a rabbi in Northampton. Do you know her? I know of her. She's been there a long time. They have a great bookstore in Northampton. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I read there one time. So who else is here? Yeah. Uh, I'm really glad to meet again. Who else? Yeah. Los Angeles, did you are you up here on business or visiting? Well, I'm happy that you came. Our Bromley, is Ace not here today? Ace is not here. <laughs> he sends me as his messenger. <laughs> okay. Everybody else I know from previous meetings? So you can be, yeah, oh. I'm Dan, I'm King with from Massachusetts. Okay, welcome. I'm Anne from Mill Valley. I'm glad you're here. Yeah. I'm Annie from Hillsburg. Oh, I used to live up in Geyserville. Hillsburg is lovely. Did you come down the freeway? Oh, the back way. Back way is beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a really... How many people come the back way through Petaluma or something? That's a beautiful ride, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And from Berkeley. So here we are. So do you want to be ace for today, make a little statement? Yeah. I think you know. No, go ahead. You can be ace. for about a minute.
I'm so glad we codified that because into the future now, that can always be Ace's contribution to this Wednesday morning. And on days that Ace isn't here, we can always say, who would like to be Ace this morning? That's... <laughs> well, that would be even funnier. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's Ace calling in. <laughs> <laughs> well, in fact, one of the things that I am increasingly feeling, and I've enjoyed so much being here so much this last month, you know, that uh, Donald is up and retreating. So when he returns next week, he should be really filled with new insights and his you know, more than his usual wonderful self. And then, by the way, I'll be back for a week, and then Donald will be back for several weeks, and then we are back changing off back and forth, back and forth. But uh, uh, it's been so important for me, both in my understanding of what we're doing with practice and in my participation at Spirit Rock and as a member of this community. It's been very important for me to feel that we all of us have the possibility of feeling connected to a community, to feel that they're, when I'm not here on a Wednesday morning, I can be any place in the world, and I think, oh, it's Wednesday morning, and either Donald is here, or Heidi is here, or Tony is here, but somebody's here that I know, carrying the flag. Jeff? I just think it would be interesting to mention, this, this is all recorded in stream, and I have a, a, a good friend who lives in India, who listens to you every time that you're <laughs> Yeah. She, she thought that was so thrilling. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I cannot seriously thank you so much. I cannot seriously tell you how salutary it is for my system to feel that I belong to a community, that there are people who care about, see, I'm going to get all teared up, that if we heard, we hear about Ace, that he had a thing, we had an accident, we all feel bad. John went to uh, Greece to help refugees. We all went with you in the spirit and talked about you all the time. And we all serve as teachers and companions for each other in whatever big and uh, other little and incidental ways we all know as of last week, I think, was last week or the week before that Marty Lai's mother is about to be 100 years old in August. And we will all either in person or maybe go up there, celebrate her 100th birthday since she still is interested in coming here. There is something about community. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who is now not only quite old but also infirm from having had a stroke, has been saying for some time that uh, the next Buddha is going to be the community, that there isn't going to be one person who carries the understanding, but a community of people 
who carry the understanding that there's a way to arrive at peace and contentment and goodwill and make a world of righteousness and justice and that more than one person will carry the flag, carry the banner for that in a viable way. So what we often do at this time is we have meditation instructions and then we sit. We are going to have minimal instructions. Oh, here is Mo. I forgot to tell everybody that Mo and I, in fact, went to that walk last Wednesday night. Do you remember we talked about, those people who were here, that there was this walk for unity and... You were? Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! I was in the newspaper. I think that the person walking along, the photographer for the IJ walking along next to this group of people uh, picked me out because I was older than everybody and shorter than everybody and I was wearing a um, pink pussy hat that Mo had knitted, and all three, I think, got me into the picture. Um, and it was very good for my mood. There weren't millions of people, but there were more than a hundred people. And I, I, I uh, confirmed once again for myself that you can be in any kind of a mood, but if you go amongst people who behave and believe as you do, you feel better. That, I mean, all of the religious communities that I know, uh, viable religious organizations, stay together because they have an element of community. If three of you or more are gathered in my name, is how Catholics say it. We just have to have some of us who believe that regardless of the news and regardless of what seems to be going on, if we gather with a, a, a shared conviction that peace in the heart is possible and peace in the world as a reflection of peace in the heart is therefore possible. We all feel better and could, the news could be terribly disruptive. But here are other people who are willing to come out on a Wednesday night and walk around for a few blocks carrying a, an electric candle. That's the newest addition to candlelight visions. You get a battery-operated candle and you don't have to worry about dripping tallow or anything. You just carry your battery operating candle. So that was great. On that topic of being with people who share a vision, on the weekend, uh, we're going to see a, a video now. We're going to see the video before we meditate for two reasons. Um, one, I want to share some of the uh, some of the news about the people I met on the weekend that I was at. It's a weekend called uh, a conference of uh, On Being. On Being is Krista Tippett's organization. It was part of NPR for a long time, and in the last decade, it separated off into the organization called On Being. So I have 500 people, almost, just under 500 people attending this conference. And keynote speeches and all kinds of other small breakout conference rooms. And all of the presenters were people who, in their field, were doing something extraordinary for the world. They were the head of this nonprofit or that nonprofit, or doing the research on that, or doing uh, nonviolent peacemaking in Ireland or in 
this place or in that place or in South Africa or someplace else. And much of the discussions of the different groups, small and large, were about how do you stay in civil conversation? And some of the presentations were awesome about the, the degree of conflict that can be in the room. And all you have to do is be able to be in the room and be respectful of people who have another opinion, which is not at all easy. Sometimes you listen to the, what other people sit in the room with, and you think, ah, I couldn't do that, but maybe I could if I were trained. I think maybe the, the, the inference is that we all could if we were trained and if we treated our mind. Oh, we just talked about your mother coming up on 100. That's in August, huh? She well today? She is. Good. Thanks. So I want to do it, first of all, because I want to talk some more when, after the film and after we sit, about having been, uh, not converted, but um, reconfirmed for my own practice in really noticing the minute my mind sinks into despair and gets into the track of thinking it's all over, did you hear the news, look what happened, the news is terrible. What happened in Florida is unspeakable. Unspeakable. Seventeen families are getting up in the morning with a beautiful teenager not in it. That's a, it's impossible to think about that. So you have to think about it. We have to do something about that. But we have to, I have to think also, it'll get done now. One way or another, it'll get done. There's one step nearer. It's a step that I wish didn't have to have been taken. But un- enough people feel outraged, it'll stop. So I'm, th- I'm thinking for myself, uh, such a dimension of practice is not just how to cope with terrible news and say, okay, I'll dose it, I'll watch it, I'll how much. But to remember there is other news. There are a whole world full of people doing wonderful things and it's a lift up to the mind to think all of those people who are running this or that nonprofit, I'm going to show you a video from another one, after a while, uh, do not think that the world is ending. They have a plan for what's happening after that, and they have a vision for that, and to really be factoring that in all the time. That's one reason why I want to show this film right now before we sit. We have another film later. The other reason is that I, I want you to really look at the film for two things. First of all, the research material about how minds form that she, that the narrator suggests, but also something about the tone of the film. I don't want to give too much away, um, but have in mind. I also chose to play it before we sit, because there, there's substantial research out now that um, uh, doing specific activities before one does contemplative work changes the contemplative experience. Like the fact that we all say hello to each other before we sit quietly is a good thing, you know. You feel a little bit friendly and you also feel a little bit more awake because you talked and you you looked at somebody in the face. But there's... And so we've sometimes sat before we sit and told about what did we do that was kind this week because that picks up the mind. But this isn't about kind. This is about something else. So, da-da-da, Laura's going to play the film. I'm going to come over here so I can see it. Yes. <laughs> 
No, I'm sitting here. Thank you, Marty. <laughs> no, I'm fine, thanks. I'm good, thanks. A lot of us are wondering, what is all this technology doing to our brains? I mean, we know that the brain changes throughout life based on experiences. In fact, watching this movie is reshaping connections in your brain right now. But since we humans are the ones creating and using this technology, maybe a better question to ask is, how are we shaping our brains? There's so much about the brain that we don't know. But there are some things we do know. You see, not long after we humans began thinking, hmm, we began thinking about ways to understand our own brains. One strategy thinkers have used throughout history is to compare the brain to the newest technology of their day. The brain is a clock, a switchboard, a steam engine, a machine, a computer. And we wondered, how can today's technology help us understand the brain in a new way? So we used that technology to ask people all over the world, how do you imagine the brain? It was amazing, like all these neurons firing ideas and images back to us from all over the world. And it was very clear. The Internet, the most advanced technological system in the world, is such a strong framework to help understand the human brain, the most advanced biological system in the world. But then we thought about it a bit more. And since the Internet is in such a young developmental stage, rapidly growing, constantly changing, forming billions of new connections all over the world, then maybe a stronger framework would be to compare it to a child's brain which is in a similar stage of development, rapidly growing, constantly changing, and making billions upon billions of connections between different parts of the brain. So here's the question. If we say that the internet is in a similar developmental stage as a child's brain, then what can we learn by comparing them? Let's start with size. Obviously the internet seems like a larger entity than a child's brain. But what does that mean in terms of our analogy? We could say that a neuron in the brain would be like a web page in the internet. So let's look at the number of neurons in a child's brain compared to the number of web pages on the internet. Well, a human at any age has about 100 billion neurons in the brain. But the internet has 10 times that, 1 trillion web pages. So with this analogy, the internet is bigger. So then, which of these networks is more complex? We could say a synapse in the brain, the connection point between two neurons, is like a hyperlink, the connection point between two web pages. 
So are there more connections in a child's brain or on the internet? Well, the internet has over a hundred trillion links. And an adult's brain has 300 trillion links. But get this, a child's brain has a quadrillion connections. 10 times the number of connections of the entire internet. A child's brain has more connections than the entire internet. Yes, it blew our minds too. How is that even possible? Let's break it down. As we said, a baby is born with 100 billion neurons. But those quadrillion connections, they're not there yet. Those connections form at a very rapid speed during the first five years of life, at 700 to 1,000 new synapses per second. Those connections are created through every interaction a child has and are important because they form the architecture of the brain. So every time you talk to and engage with a child, you are literally growing a brain, connecting the different parts of the brain, which allows for new ideas, insights, and creative thinking. So each moment of eye contact, each new word exchanged, each time you make a child laugh, you are strengthening these connections. And since there are so many different ways to do this, we ask people around the world, Send us videos of your favorite ways to engage with the children in your life. During these early years, a child's brain makes as many connections as possible. And then it begins pruning the ones that aren't used and strengthening the ones that are. A dynamic process that continues throughout life. But since a child's brain is activated by everything it encounters, it can also be overwhelmed, which causes stress. When the brain experiences stress, the body's alarm system is activated. If the stress is relieved quickly, the system easily returns to normal. And while learning to deal with stress is an important part of development, severe situations such as ongoing abuse or neglect, where there is no caring adult to relieve the stress, leaves the body's alarm system activated, which can have serious lifelong consequences for the child. This is known as toxic stress. Toxic stress can lead to a body system set permanently on high alert. It causes the synapses we use for learning and self-control to be pruned while connections for fear and rash behavior get stronger. While the brain can change throughout the rest of life, these early years are fundamental in building a strong foundation for curiosity, creativity, and adaptability. And if we say that the internet is in the same critical stage of early development, making as many connections as possible, we also need to be mindful of how we're building its foundation. Just like every interaction creates new connections in a child's brain, every email, tweet, search, or post is creating and strengthening connections in our global brain, literally changing the shape of the Internet that we as billions of people all over the world are developing together. 
And just as it's key for all the different parts of a child's brain to be connected to set the stage for the most insightful and creative thoughts, it's key that all the different parts of the world are connected to lay the foundation for worldwide empathy, innovation, and human expression. And while we don't know all the ways technology is reshaping our brains yet, we do know that every time we plug in, every person we follow, email, or link to, we know it's affecting us. So we need to be mindful of what we let into our brains, always. Which sometimes means knowing when to disconnect. Just as it's not good for a child's brain to be constantly over or understimulated, it's not good for an adult's brain either. For both the internet and a child's brain, the connections we pay most attention to will be strengthened, while the ones we use less will be pruned. So how do we nurture both of these growing interconnected networks to set a course for a better future? By paying attention to what we are paying attention to. Attention is the mind's most valuable resource. Every interaction counts. We all have the opportunity to shape the future of the world. And our future starts here. Do you want to just sit or do you want to talk about it for a minute or two and then sit? Okay, the vote was sit. <laughs> Not everybody came to the polling place, but <laughs> let's sit. Well, the people who haven't been here before haven't had sitting instructions. Paying attention is our most important skill they said at the very end. It's our most important something, asset. Do you remember what they said at the very end? Paying attention is our most important 
resource or skill or tool. What did they say at the very end? Resource, paying attention, is our most important resource and every interaction counts. So if you haven't sat before, just sit. You can have your eyes open or closed. Mostly the instructions are rest in this moment in which you don't need to do anything at all. You don't need to go anyplace or do anything or think about the past or think about the future or plan. Just have to sit here and feel what you feel and know what you're feeling. And we'll sit for 25 minutes. Really, all you have to do is pay attention.
We'll sit for another few minutes. If you like to mention the name of person or persons that you're thinking about in some celebratory way or some concerned way, this is the space that we always leave for it. I expect that uh, you're all thinking this morning about the 17 young people who um, died in Florida last Wednesday and uh, their families. Who else are you thinking about? Thinking of Donald Rothberg and the Rothberg family, this is the second anniversary of his mother's passing. Thinking of my dear friend Claire Morris, who was in the hospital after having taken a fall, hit her head. There's some internal bleeding. Hoping that she will recover fully and well from her present. Thank you. 
I'm thinking of my friend Rachel, who is in between chemotherapy rounds and uh, for her glioblastoma. And it's now a year since her diagnosis, which is long for glioblastoma. about my daughter who just moved to California and with her boyfriend and is extremely happy and hopeful. May all the people that we mentioned and all the people that we thought of and didn't mention and all the people that we don't know to name because we don't know them, but all over the world are suffering grief and concern, be consoled. And may all those celebrating be cheered on in their celebration. And may we as lovers and consolers feel connected 
to all of them. I was thinking, um, again, as we were saying the names and situations of people who are in our minds and hearts, I always say it, that I, I think it's the most important thing that we do here. We get it for many reasons, that uh, we don't have to... We, we experience, I, when I share experience the comfort of being, of feeling that I'm part of a community that cares that I'm thinking about those people and cares for me and my caring. I also always find it um, such a reminder of the main point that, that we keep, I keep trying to learn in order that my mind stays fixed on relating to the world with compassion and kindness and not get caught in the traps of personal ego stories, I need this or I want that or whatever. Because it's much more um, gratifying for me to find myself in love with the world and wanting to console it than to feel myself personally annoyed at some passing event in my life. Also because it's, it's so the uh, fundamental story of our lives uh, that we're all very vulnerable to loss. We share that. Every time they say, well, we're just like everybody else in the world. We're just not, no, we're not like everybody else in the world it, except we all share vulnerability to loss and pain. And uh, probably you have the experience as I do of hearing a voice that I don't know whose voice it is and I don't know the person that they're talking about, but there's something about the situation that you feel moved about, you know, that actually it 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 registers in my in my body. It's not just in my heart. But somebody says something, it's as if that that's a situation of need or grief or loss. And you kinda of move towards it a little bit. 
I, I thought particularly this morning, since some of the people mentioned are people that I know, I didn't know that Claire was in the hospital. And since I know Marty and Claire is a friend of mine, and then you hear Claire Morris and whoa. So if you feel, and I think it's true for me, I think it's true for you too. You feel all about this one and all about that one, all about that one. You really do genuinely feel touched about it. But then you hear it's somebody that you personally are involved with and you feel, oh, don't, don't, doesn't it happen to you? Or I hear that the person who's saying it is somebody that I know and therefore... I, and I think, I think that's the way it's supposed to be. That the people that we know, we have that read. It doesn't mean that we're callous about everybody else. It means we, that's maybe how we can modulate everybody else. I think it was last week or recently, I hope, because I, I don't want to repeat a story I've told just recently. So I didn't tell the end of it about somebody I was checking out of a hotel with a group, of, and a group of people getting ready to get on a bus to go to the airport. And there was a, che- there was an, um, a computer available for all the guests to check last minute before getting on the bus. And the last person who had looked at it uh, had not uh, remembered to, to sign out. So I sat down and clicked it on, lit up, and they were still signed on. And uh, the the email that they had just read said, our mother is dying today, for sure by tomorrow. Please try to be home. And I, really, I looked around and I realized that it could have been any of the people who were getting on the bus with me. And I don't know, it was some of the, one of the people who got on the bus because it was somebody who checked that computer just before I did. And you get on the bus and everybody's riding along And you look at them all and you don't know them except the person you're traveling with. And all of a sudden you think one of these people is traveling because their mother's dying today. And they have a situation that if I haven't already had, we'll have soon. Everybody will have, if they, unless they outlive their mother, they'll have that situation of dealing with the loss of it. And all of a sudden you feel, you realize all of these people are carried, we are all of us from childhood vulnerable to the loss of a parent or a sibling or a grandparent or someone that we really love. And at any time, sometimes we think, well, you know, I used to think that people died in the right order. You know, that the oldest people, and you know, you, you read that in, uh, we hear it at funerals or you read it in, Accounts. They had a very long and full life. So we think, okay, it's all right. But even if they had a long and full life, we miss when they're gone. You know, with uh, the people that I knew, my mother died when I was much younger, and my father also. But when my aunt died, who was my only relative left, really, that I, who was... uh, 17 years older than I. About 10 years ago, I think. And I would remember her particularly, and she lived on the other side of the country, and I loved her a lot, and I would remember her every Saturday because I used to call her every Saturday. And it would get to be Saturday, 
And I'd think, oh, I have to call Miriam. Then I realized, oh, Miriam's not there anymore. And it's like a hole in the world where Miriam used to be. And we are all vulnerable. All of us have holes in the world, don't you? Have holes in the world where somebody used to be. And they're not there anymore. And we also are welcoming new people into the world all the time. And it's all right. I mean, it's not a mistake. It's the way the world works. It's the way things work. It's what the Buddha taught. But to think that relationships are so precious and time-limited. Myself, I notice in in my mind, my voice gets um, lower. Like, you know, it says, lower your voice, like in a hospital or a library. So the voice in my in my mind that talks to me becomes more comforting and less strident. Sometimes you think you hear people talking to pe- uh, people, you know, un- you know, so unpleasantly and, and words vilifying them. But you have to say, I, I, you know, if we could all think to each other, Shh, all of these people have mothers who either died or will die, and fathers and children and grandchildren. Really, that's the situation. If we knew that people are are suffering, all of them, of the disease of being alive, and therefore vulnerable to loss, we would. I would have. When I remember that, I'm much more forgiving. I don't forget whose political persuasions I don't agree with, and whose plans I disagree with. but I'm more spacious about it. Not that it's okay if I could change the rules of this country. A lot of things that I would change. But I, I want to be able to change things with vigor and um, determination, but not with hatred. Because, uh, just period, not. I really think that, um, oh, I want to go back and ask you now, because we didn't have a chance to talk about it. We took a vote. <laughs> One to nothing, that vote was. <laughs> I asked, so you spoke up. No, no, it's good. Don't feel bad. I'm happy about it. I'm just I'm teasing a little bit. We took a vote. So, uh, but I also wasn't in such a hurry to talk about that film. I think it's a lovely film, don't you? Uh, what did you think else about it? What other thoughts did it spur in your mind? Bonnie, what? Well, I feel that I'm in the midst of uh, enjoying our two-year-old grandson and seeing all these connections being made. So we went out in the garden yesterday and I introduced him to pine cones. We went out in the garden. We have to put it right by your mouth. It's not on. Wait, wait, wait. Sorry about that. So, two-year-old grandson out in the garden yesterday. So we were out in the garden, which he loves to be outside, and I love to be outside with him. And he was discovering pine cones. 
and he never had s seen a pine cone before or recognized it. And I taught him pine cones, and he kept saying cones, 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 yeah. cones, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> counting them. And it's just it's just a wonder yeah. how he develops. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else did you want to say about that film? There you are. The last five years of my teaching career, I spent three years at the Alameda County Juvenile Facility and three years at Thunder Road, which is a residential adolescent treatment facility for substance abusers. And I saw all of the children, virtually all of the children I saw in those five years were children who were damaged in one way or the other. And you get to see what happens when the good things don't happen to children. Yeah, yeah. It's really, um, it's really so, uh, in me, touching to watch. Well, one of the things that was so moving about the film is that sequence in the end where children are rushing into the arms of an adult that's waiting for them. And, and the children I was working with didn't have that. That particular little, that particular, um, what do you call it, trope, that, that scene, children running into their mother's or their father's arms who are waiting to catch them. Is it like, really makes tears in your eyes. Everybody wants to run there and toddle there and get picked up and rejoiced over. It doesn't happen to a lot of people. And, uh, go ahead. There you go. This is on a little different note, but when I was watching the film, I was thinking about how, um, you know, you do have to deal with people that are difficult in your life. It's impossible to get away. And, and, and just how do you um, sort of like, um, you know, notice the toxicity of something that isn't pleasant from somebody that is difficult? And, and when is it too stressful? You know, how do you balance that? Just sort of like just thinking about that. You know, because sometimes you're on overload and you have to take care of yourself. Now, what's your name? Alice. Alice. I'm glad you asked that question because uh, uh, one of the things I wished I were two people or that I could bilocate because all of the conferences on the, all of the subgroups were people having civil conversations about different things and different combinations of people. And I was, I found it awesome to listen to people who are skilled in how to do that. And I thought to myself, apropos of your question, I'm not sure, I don't think that I couldn't do it. I think with training, I could be able to be in rooms with people who absolutely be believe different things than I do. <coughs> with a sense of respect for the fact that they're a person and I can listen to them and they can listen to me. But I think, and I think the sentence that you said that's so crucial is how do you work out What's the right stuff for you? How do you know when it's time to back off? I had a lesson in that maybe 20 years ago, at least 30 maybe, uh, when uh, uh, Vasconcellos was the congressperson from uh, Los Angeles. Anyway, he had passed a, had, he had authored a bill that got put through the California uh, legislature that mandated that everybody who was uh, a therapist with a license, uh, like myself, everybody who's doing psychotherapy with a license, needed to get certify that they had taken a course in um, 
in child abuse and how to handle it. Because one of the rules now, and, and reporting it, because one of the rules in California is that if I, as a therapist, hear about, and if I, as a person, actually hear about next door that people are beating their child or keeping it locked up in the house, uh, a regular person is supposed to call and call Child Protective Services. And it's actually mandated for people who are licensed that you're supposed to, if someone tells you, I'm so upset my neighbor is beating their child or I am beating my child, you have to do something about it. So you had to go take a course in it. So I remember taking this course, going, went up to Sacramento to take the course. And the woman who taught the course uh, first spent the morning really uh, making the point that way more than most of us imagine, children are mistreated. And she talked about all kinds of terrible things that you don't want to hear when about what happens. Most people don't do that, but some people do. And to know about, you have to, to be able to realize that you have to be, I guess, su sufficiently alerted to this. And I could see that people were looking out the window and you know, trying to do all kinds of things but in, in, and not hear it. But you'd have to hear it one after another after another. And she would tell about what, what they do, which I'll skip, but terrible things, brutalizing children. And then, she, and then we got around to talking about what do you do when, you, uh, when someone is referred to you here and you see a person and the, the social workers go in or child protective services go in and they find a child who's being beaten by its mother or neglected or in some terrible way mistreated by the parent. And she would tell stories of how you do. And she said, you know, what I do is I, uh, let's say there's a mother with a child that I have to now tell her she has to give to me, a toddler, say, because she needs to go into a treatment center and uh, or a detox or a program for her addiction or something and prove to the state that she's rehabilitated herself and has changed. And but she can't have a child during that period of time. She said, well, what I do is I say to the woman, uh, we're going to have to uh, help you now, and we have help for you. We have things that, services that can do things for you. We're going to get you some help because I know you would like to take better care of your child. I know you'd like to do that. And since it's not happening, we're going to help you do it. So let's walk together down the hall where there'll be another social worker waiting for you. You carry the child. You take the child with you, or you walk and hold her hand, his hand. We're going to walk down the hall, and you're going to pass over the child to the social worker who will find a placement for it, take good care of them. And when I walk with them down the hall, I keep my arm around them, or I hold their other hand to help them. It's a terrible moment to have somebody tell you, we have to take away your child. But we do it, and we let them carry their child. We let them be the person who gives it away, telling them you're now doing the right thing. I know you want to do the right thing. We all want you to be able to have the child back. And we all sat there, and we listened to this with mouths hanging open that all day long, day after day, this person is listening to stories of terrible, terrible things that happen to children and having to separate them from their parent and having to meet parents who are perpetrators of this. And so what do you do to keep yourself balanced, you know, keep yourself from... 
He said, well, I live three blocks from the office where I work, social service agency where I work. So I walk, I work, I walk home at lunchtime, and I fix myself lunch at home, and I watch soap operas. I think to myself, ah, watch soap operas. It's the same thing on the soap operas, but you know that they have more troubles. And, but you know, it's not because on the soap operas, it's not about child abuse. And soap operas is so outlandish, you know, that you can, you know, and they're actors, and you know, it's not real. And it's like a little bit vacation from your life of this is real. That's not real. Which I'm not suggesting everybody started on soap operas, but. Uh, but to do something else. They also have the televisions trained in, on soap operas. And not all of them, I'm sure. But I have, over the however many years, needed to go have uh, bone scans or sometimes an MRI. And you sit in a, in a waiting room of people waiting to have scans uh, and many of them clearly have difficult, terrible, difficult diseases because they're bald from the chemo. And they're all watching soap operas on the joint TV. But it's not real up there. Maybe that's an idea for what to do. Distract yourself. I'm not sure distracting. I'm not sure. Maybe a little distracting. Yeah. Sometimes over the years, I feel that people almost like, like you're talking about social workers and people that are in the thick of it every day, they almost, um, it becomes normal. And they lose that, you know, like even in medicine, you know, you see the young resident walk in and they're all idealistic and they're all, you know, hopeful and I can make a difference. And sometimes the system beats you down. And to be able to carry that, you know, desire to help like that, um, I think um, it becomes, as you get older, you know, it's, it's, it's a great emotional and physical effort to be able to make that difference day in and day out. So some of this, even mothers, because I've gone to millions of births, it's almost like this child is going to fix me, mm. not... You know what I mean? Mm. When you look at the backgrounds, not um, they're all hopeful that they're going to have that movie. Mm. Maybe like the soap operas, yeah. you know, where that, that child is going to run into their arms, they're going to feel that love. So that, that's why some people have kids, too, that maybe shouldn't always have kids. And that's a sad thing as well. But the, and, how, but the, 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 and the other question of what you're saying is how do we recognize when we're still able to help with all our heart and how do we recognize when we need to take a breath and move back? I think one of the things about about mindfulness practice is not so much learning uh, devices for, sta- for settling the mind and uh, techniques for soothing it and techniques of self-compassion, but most of all the technique of awareness or the capacity, it's not a technique, the capacity for awareness. That's what it said at the end, that what we really need is the capacity for awareness, and it's awareness of what's needed now, sometimes in this situation, and sometimes in this situation. And what's needed now... uh, The reason I just paused over when I said, sometimes you distract yourself, 
um, and I momentarily heard the the voice of my teacher, Joseph Goldstein. Let me see if I can do this in less than 60 seconds. I was reading a new book. This is 20 years ago. I was reading a new book that he had written. It had just come out. I was flying on my way home from the East Coast from studying at uh, in Barry, Massachusetts, where there's a retreat center. He was teaching. I'd been practicing there. I'm flying back. Maybe it's 25, 30 years ago. Anyway, I'm flying back, and uh, I'm reading his new book, and... Uh, the, tra- the 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 plane out of Chicago had to turn around and go back, and they, and they said, "You're not terribly sorry. We're turning around, but our uh, something or other is not working. Um, I've forgotten compressors. I, it's 30 years ago, so I, who knows? But something is not working right. It, we're not in any immediate danger, but I, he, the, said the pilot. But I don't want to fly over the Rockies without going back." and getting that particular, whatever that meant, without going back to Chicago and getting it replaced. And uh, so we turn around, and then they start to give all kinds of uh, instructions for take, the, take off your eyeglasses, put them in your pocket, take out your pencils from your pocket, take your shoes off, this is how a brace for the landing position. And I thought, well, I'll just, uh, I'll just uh, try to distract myself for a minute, and I pick up Joseph's book. I'll just read. And uh, so I pick up Joseph's book and it opens to a page where if it says, if the mind is in a, gets into a really, a, an upset situation, do not try to distract yourself. <laughs> Honestly, that's what it said. So, and it, it was actually a good piece of advice because I, it, it really, honestly, it was it's like, I don't believe in da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I really don't. I don't see omens. Everything is an omen. Every single thing is an omen. But I did open to the page that said, if unpleasant feelings have arisen in the mind, don't try to distract yourself. So, all right, so I don't try to distract myself. What am I going to do? I close it, and I start to notice how frightened I actually am, ding, 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 how unhappy I am about the person next to me is a German tourist who does not speak English and doesn't know what's going on. And my German is limited, but I tried to, because I can fake it pretty much with the Yiddish, which is not a dialect of German, but depends very much on it. And I did study German for a year, so i trying in my halting German to explain to him what's the matter, what's going on. And then I'm sitting there and I'm worrying about it. And I decided to um, do metaphrases for myself as we're landing. May I be peaceful, may I be happy, may, I be, may this one, may that one. May think, I was thinking about all my family. May this one be happy, may that one be happy, may this one be happy, may this. And we're landing, and I couldn't think about which other people didn't I mention. May all beings be happy, may all beings be happy, may all beings be happy. And you're landing and see the, the landing, um, uh, what do they call it? The uh, runway has uh, fire engines lined up alongside of it and other emergency equipment. You could just see out the window as you're landing. I think it was that the uh, that the or the uh, landing gear might not go down, that the doors would jam, and the landing gear might not go down. And I'm, you know, may all beings be peaceful, may all beings be happy, may all beings be peaceful, may all beings be happy. And we landed, and nothing happened. But 
uh, it really did, um, at the last minute, focus my attention. And I wasn't hysterical when we landed. I thought to myself, well, in 10 seconds, I'll either be dead or not dead. May all beings be peaceful, may all beings be happy. And it was all right. You know, that, because when you know the chips are down, I'll either be dead or not dead in 10 seconds. So it was uh, at the time, it was like a big deal, but it's like, you know, again, the story, you don't know. When we, they regroup, they fix the plane, they put us on another plane, and then everybody all the way to San Francisco was telling stories about once upon a time. This was not the worst. Once upon a time, I was landing in Honolulu, and the plane tried to land, and something was was the matter with the landing gear. So the last minute, they they swooped up, and then they went around three or four times. That was really worse when somebody else had a story about something else. But um, you know, it's going to be something sometime. Did we say everything we wanted to say about the movie? That I was very touched about that line: "Everything counts." There's a there's an expression in uh, the traditional Buddhist teaching that I was always a little uncomfortable with the literal translation or what was given as the literal translation. There's two mind states called hiri, H-I-R-I in English. Hiri and O... Hiri and O... o Otapa, isn't it Otapa? Hiri and Otapa, which are translated as moral shame and moral dread, which sounds, I, th- I think that's not what it means. Uh, um, what it then goes on to explain is which mean the awareness that everything that you do is going to have a consequence. Every single thing that you ha- do has a consequence. The people who say, well, I don't like either of these candidates, so I'm not voting. That has a consequence. Or it's not going to make a difference, so I'm not voting. In three swing states, less than 70,000 people made a difference in Pennsylvania and Michigan and someplace else. Everything matters. And the other one was everything that you do has repercussions. Nothing doesn't matter. So you think to yourself... Well, there are some things that you do that, you know, that you're all the time making decisions. I'm going to turn right instead of turning left. And you don't know that, that it's usually a benign decision, but could be potholes here or not there. It could be an accident, not accident. Anything you do causes something else. Proximally or not so proximally. So, every, so you can't do nothing. And everything you do has results which might be in some ways deleterious and in other ways salutary to people. You don't know what. And that those results echo like ripples through the whole cosmos. So it reminds me of the butterfly flapping her wings in Massachusetts and there's a typhoon in the South Pacific and that the butterfly is a distal cause of the typhoon. I think that's a metaphor. I think that it doesn't trigger a response. But you know, what mothers say into their children from the beginning makes a difference. What teachers say into them. I've loved it. I I don't remember, although I always talk to my own children. 
I do, I do remember talking to them when they were just born. But I certainly talked to my grandchildren when they were just born. You just had a grandbaby. Did you talk to her, Romney? Yeah? <laughs> but wait, can you remember what you said to her when she was first born? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Who else? What did you say to your grandbaby when it was born? How beautiful you are. Hello? We had an eight, can you hear me? 18 year, 18 month old grandson, my husband and I took him to the old aquarium. He screamed with delight. He is a marine biologist now. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody else? Yeah. Jeff. Let's see. First, I love the many times more connections in an infant's mind. Uh, it reminded me of the beginner's mind theory. You know, experts can't know what they should know because they've excluded new information. Beginner mind is the way to go. And the second thing is, given your talk about the airplane crashes, it occurs to me that. Um, Ten seconds from now, any one of us could be gone. It's, you know, that's an extraordinarily unpredictable thing. Um, And then finally, the third thing is, in my family, we have a tradition of singing to the newborn. Uh. And um, we sang to uh, both of my children. And although neither one of them will ever be professional musicians... I think they've had a brighter and happier life as a result of having that start in the world. The other thing, though, mention of child abuse, because of a history uh, in, in my wife and I's past, my ex-wife and I's past, um, there was um, a period of time where some abuse by, by neglect occurred, my youngest children. And you said something about regret and... Uh, Moral shame and moral regret, is that too? Yeah, moral dread, yeah. Moral dread, right? I just wish I'd had a little bit of that, more of that going on during that period of my life. Yeah. These things tend to be passed on. I realized only much later that I had had a similar t- period of time in my childhood with my parents yeah. and discussing it with my now 97-year-old mother. Her, her family during the Depression was moved off to a farm and neglected by the parents so that they could try to hang out to the house in Houston. So these things get passed along. It's not, you know, gee, karma has a hard and long-lasting effect, doesn't it? It does. And the the picture of, in each of those cases at the end of the video, the the child runs, 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 and gets clasped. And, you know, that'll be safe to let go and leave and someone will catch you. That toddler who toddles across to its mother 
uh, and the one I love it who's going around the, the living room, going from one family member to another. Everybody's going to hold you up, see, and everybody's going to take delight in you. Didn't you feel like all uplifted from that? Yeah. So you have you have two of them now in college, right. yeah. So just, just how, it, sorry, how things change too as as we get older and they get older and life has its impact that we don't open our arms as wide maybe and the kids don't want to open their arms to us either. That's that's what I was thinking about during that. Yeah, yeah. It's all it's a, and I, it's a whole long thing to talk about. Different cultures have different ways of uh, meeting. There are there are huggier cultures than others. Uh, yeah, Marty. Here you go. Um, I'm in a group right now where, uh, with Dana De Palma, actually, and what we've been working on are uh, some phrases or slogans in Norman Fisher's book on training and compassion. <laughs> And uh, the first real thing, which we're all talking about, really, and how all of these different things help us to realize the preciousness of our human life and how rare it actually is. If you think of every single life form that there is on the planet, including all of the microbes that live on us, we are very, very fortunate. And... At the same time, the inevitability of, of our dying, of our passing, the impermanence of everything, which makes it so much more how important every moment is. And the one that I've also been really focusing on is the awesome, indelible power of our actions. So everything that we, that we do... Um, you know, it, it all harkens back to the preciousness of our life, the fact that it's fleeting, and um, it's so important what we do. I want to really take that to be the cue. Laura's been waiting to show this other film. I wish we had another hour today. This other film, I think it has, I wanted to show you this film because it's the work of one other person who I happened to have lunch with the other day. And um, oh, she was telling me about her. She she's the director. She's a, the executive director of an organization called End End Neglected Diseases E N D E N D End Neglected Diseases dot org. You can look it up. And she said, you know, there are so many diseases for which there's lots of help going out in the world. The, cancer research and this kind of research and and, the, and polio is really almost eradicated in most places so, but there are diseases that don't kill you but make your life much worse and she said there are a whole list of those smallish diseases that thousands of people are afflicted with and they live less wholesome lives, less fulfilling lives and that's her job, she's the executive and she goes it involves organizations all over the world that uh, make 
grant applications, which through her, she as the funder for all these different organizations that are doing all this different work, uh, she's both the person who organizes getting the grants and distributes them. And I was thinking about, I was very impressed with what she did, and I noticed that she was um, wearing a wedding ring. And she said, I travel about three, month, three weeks out of every month. And I said, um, how do you, uh, you have a, I noticed you seem to be married. Are you married? She said, yes, I'm married. I have an eight-year-old child. She said, but, you know, we live in wherever she lives, and my husband has a job right nearby, and we have adequate care, and my daughter's doing great. And uh, she said, I'll send you some stuff. And she sent me a bunch of videos of her work. She also sent me the the artwork of the, I don't have it with me, of the uh, letter, that the report for school that her daughter wrote in when she was six years old and accompanied her. And uh, uh, I'll tell you about it later. In six-year-old writing or seven-year-old writing about uh, uh, people have... Uh, children have worms in them because they accidentally... Well, she didn't say accidentally. They eat worm eggs and then they don't go out of them but they swallow this pill and they poop it out in the end and then they're all well and they go to school. And I was thinking the question is, how do you raise children so that they become people who feel like doing that kind of thing in their life? Here's this woman who's running around the globe three weeks out of every month, distributing... She's not preoccupied with the world coming to an end. It may be, but in the meanwhile, she's making a lot of people's life more comfortable. So she sent me all this stuff, and she sent me the beautiful letter from her child. And the child is not in this film, but some other child, slightly older, 10, is in this film. But like all the other stories that I heard in the weekend, that people who are busy... Oh, somebody said this. If you are not out actively improving the world, you are complicit in not improving it. So I thought, whoa, I thought about that. I thought, don't I get points because I'm old, I did a lot... I could stop. No, no. You don't get, I mean, you get points, but what? <laughs> okay, thanks, Laura, for waiting. Okay. Hi, my, <laughs> my name is Mia Campbell, and... I'm 10 years old. I live in New York. Right now in Kenya, we are here with the N Fund. Friend, by the way. So worm pills. 
deworm pill. And it was really fun giving it to them. And some of them liked it, some of them did not like it. So first they wash their hands, then they go in a line to go to take the pill, and then um, the guy there writes down their names, and then you give them the pill and then they chew it. If they don't like it, they have it for a long time. If they <laughs> like it, it goes straight down. It tastes like vanilla, chalk, and something like a hint of garlic. children to recover from the worms and keep them from getting them. <laughs> On the first day we drove outside of Nairobi to see a trachoma surgery. Seeing Mia too at the seeing the surgery and at the lab and things was, yeah, was really she was braver than Nora and I, which I think is yeah. super impressive. You had to stay in the back. I did. I had to leave, period. And she had to leave, so Mia definitely saw everything firsthand, which was yeah. very impressive. Especially, I feel like Mia learned a lot. I thought the eye surgery was pretty cool. It saves your vision and your eyelashes don't um, scratch your eye. Once I get the, the slide, which has already been prepared, I start checking, going through it. When I get a positive parasite, then I start counting. When it is done, now I come and check what my telecounter reads. Well, there's all different kind of worms. Join me 
and the end fund. So what do you think? Hmm? They're doing good work. I was thinking about what it inspires in me. Um, what I hope it will inspire in lots of people who see that is I think to myself, oh, I'll, I'll give something to the end fund. I did. But then I think, well, you know, I, I know that they have huge grants from huge philanthropies and whatever I send is not very much, but it's like the butterfly flapping here and an effect over here. If a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people send a little, that's a lot. And I, and I was thinking about that decision every day if I go through my mail carefully. There's at least, I don't know, 10 or 15 solicitations every single day, which many, I'm, you know, I, I, the truth is I don't look at them all. But I think it's not incumbent on me to look at them all and support them all. It's incumbent on me to think about when I do want to and do that. What I do know, and you probably know it too, is that when I do something like that, I feel better. And I certainly know I'm not curing that situation in that moment by that movement, but I'm doing something. I think it has to do, this is maybe the point that I can just make, <laughs> Sometimes I feel I have to say something Buddhist to make it relevant to this class. You know what? That's fine. I do have to say something relevant to make it Buddhist. But the thing is that it's not Buddhist, it's just human truths. And it is true that when I'm involved in something that's the cause of good for other people, my mind is happier. That's just true. So that when we, what happened to Mao, she probably went to work. We, we talked about last Wednesday night when we went on that march together. It was cold. There weren't so many people. They milled around for an hour before they took off. There weren't any seats to sit down in the milling. So it, it was not the most comfortable thing. But it was uplifting that we were there. I felt good about that. For that amount of time that we're putting in that, not to, you know, that we couldn't all go, but we'll all go to walk somewhere or another. There's going to be a walk Next month, uh, where, do you know where it is? I saw it this morning. The the march about gun violence. Do you know where it's going to be? March. Well, it's going to be March twenty fourth in D.C., but also all around the country, different schools. So I don't know where it will be here, but lots of kids marching. Lots of kids marching, which is really inspiring. Be very nice. We have lots of grandmothers with pussy hats. You know that. Can I say something? So yeah. So. Speaking of grandmother and this little girl being 10 years old, and I have a 10-year-old granddaughter and 6-year-old twin boys, and I think, you know, the kids live in Marin, and they're taught to be good and nice and generous and give things away. But, you know, to really raise our kids in such a way that they have a bigger a purpose. Look, look what that kid learned there. Yeah. You know, it just made me think, like, what can I do with her so that we can be involved in something in that way? That feels like a big gift. You know, Brom, talk to me about it, because I think I might know. Okay. Or at least I know who the people who know about that yeah. are. That's great. Thanks. So we'll, yeah. Good.
you should, if he was asked if you should, a person should give money to homeless people. And he said, yes, give. And he said, and when you give, it helps if you could look in their eye or talk to them. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that has given me a whole, the guilt about not doing something has gone away. You know, I, I know I don't walk on the other side of the street anymore. If I have to give to two people or three people, then that's what I do. And it's just it it makes us all together. It it makes the homeless person and the unhomeless person mm -hmm. together. Remind me of your name. Margot. Margot, I'm so happy that you said that. But really it makes us it makes us one with everybody else, not the me and the them that need the help. You know, we all need the help of helping each other, really. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Ellen. When you asked about how do you instill that inspiration of humanitarianism in a child, I think that all of us have connections to children directly and indirectly. That when children see that film, all of a sudden it becomes more personal because it, you hear the little girl say, I made new friends. You know, I now have pen pals. And they can relate to that. And I think... Children are the greatest ambassadors for change there are in the, what we have in the world. And whatever we can do to engender this kind of spirit in children is our future. And every, every chance we can get to take a film like that and share it with every child anywhere where we see children taking an active role, not a passive role, so that these new generations realize that apathy doesn't work, that activity, however you find it comfortable in your life, you can find a cause to relate to, but instilling it in a child is, mm. I think, the future, we, the only hope we have. Because without that, you know, amen. <laughs> you know what, I'm, I, I just now had a sudden thought. I'm going to talk with my friend, uh, who's the um, director of End Fund, and ask her if somebody has already set up, as Mia has a pen pal, we could now have Skype pals with whole classes of children talking to whole classes of children in different parts of the world that are now, people don't have computers in their each home, but schools have computers and groups of people can be talking to, groups of children can be talking to other groups of children. Go. I just want to share a success story that um, I always knew children were my reason to etra. And if I was to raise two children in this world, it would double my efforts and what I would do. <clears throat> so I had a boy and a girl in my 20s, and my son was ADD, and my daughter had lactose intolerance, and my husband was getting diabetes, and I had thought it went on and on and on. As we got older, more and more problems. And... Um, trouble with learning so we decided to take my kids out to sea and homeschool them for four years traveling in a boat and so we had a very close tribe we ate healthy food we were involved in other communities all the things that we've been talking about I was able to bring to my children's life long story short when we came back none of us had any of the diseases that we were diagnosed with <laughs> whoa they told my son he had such a severe overbite that they had to crack his jaw, and he had flat feet. They had to rebuild his arch. He didn't even need braces. Four years of 
having mother and father, all of us together 24-7, homeschooling, fresh air, good food, and a tribe of other boaters with kids. And I could go on and on and on. But anyway, to end the story, my uh, daughter is finishing up to be a um, nurse practitioner and be part of Doctors Without Borders. And my son is an amazing artist musician, and he is in China right now, and he is spreading um, what he learned through his art. Wow. And I am so proud of him. And um, so my point is, it can be done. Well, I mean, there's like 10 points in what you said. Like, what you put in makes a difference. There's the whole what makes people sick point, how they get well point. Yeah. What's your name? Tara. And I realize not everyone can go out to sea, um, but there's got to be a lot of different ways, and that just was my way, and uh, it worked. I don't even know. It's an extraordinary story. Thank you very, very much. What else? There you go. Yesterday, I spent the day with my grandson. He's 13, almost 14. And... Oh, yesterday I spent the day with my grandson. You know, I drove to Los Gatos, and and um, he had a free day, which is unusual. And we went, we fed the fed the ducks, you know, at a stream. We talked about nature, and we went to the the new movie uh, Black Panther. Oh. We went for the second time. He'd already seen it, but I hadn't. And there was, you know, I raised my son near Alameda as a single mother, so I'm familiar with the Oakland tenements and the kids. And that movie kind of blew me out of the water, and we talked about it, you know, because my grandson's never seen poverty, Mm -hmm. and, you know, where his father has, and he's successful now, you know, like she was saying, but the whole part of the movie was just wonderful inspiration where my generation and my grandson's generation could come together and Mm -hmm. see at the end of this movie how this man bought all these low-income housing, and he was going to redo it. It sounds simple. Don't tell the end of the story. Oh, <laughs> Spoiler alert, I saw it yesterday afternoon, too. But it was... Uh, the, and I dreamt about it all night, and I was seeing it all as I was sitting this morning. But how powerful it's that very powerful. was for um, everyone who... I mean, there's many other messages in it, too, but I was just... yeah. To be able to share that with a young person and to be able to talk about it was yeah. wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Now, I saw that yesterday afternoon as well. Anybody else saw it? Black Panther. So go and see it. We'll talk about it the next. It, listen, I want to say something in the next one minute, not to justify, just to, no, really not to justify, but here's the, uh, here's the point, really. Maybe two minutes. This is, this is the Ajataka story. It's a children's story from the Buddhist tradition. It's about a great buffalo. So the Jataka tales are all about animals, but you can tell that the animals are a prequel to the life of the Buddha, if you will. That the, the Buddha learning to have patience, learning to be a good friend, learning to be generous, and then he's born as Siddhartha Gautama, so they say. And this particular story is about the great buffalo, and there's a monkey who's a mischievous monkey, 
who annoys him a lot and mocks him and makes fun of him and falls out of the trees on his back and says, look at you, you're so foolish, I can mock you and you don't say anything. And he just doesn't. And then a forest sprite comes out of the trees and says to him, one day a magical forest sprite caught sight of these monkey tricks and became very angry. Oh, great buffalo, why do you put up with this foolish monkey? What could you be thinking? Are you afraid of him? Have you become his slave? Does he know some terrible secret about you that he threatens to tell? The strongest lions fear your wrath, and even elephants step out of your path. With hooves like yours, you could crush him to bits. With horns like yours, you could shred him to, shred, to strips. Oh, forest sprite, Buffalo replied. Anger never leads to happiness. Monkey does me a great favor by giving me an opportunity to defeat my anger and practice patience. By learning patience, I protect myself as well as others. How good I feel inside when I'm patient. Anger does not upset my heart, and I do not have to hurt someone and feel sorry later. Anger does not upset my heart, and I do not have to hurt someone and feel bad about it later. But the forest bride could not understand. This rascal's tricks will only worsen if you don't wise up and teach him a lesson. It's better to be patient, my friend, the buffalo said, for this may we awaken his inner failings. Though monkey is mischievous like all creatures, he possesses a true heart. The forest bride was amazed because he had not figured out how to handle a tease. And even though he knew all manner of magic and spells, patience, he said, what a magical term. Could you teach me how to do it? Show me quickly. Show me now. I want to know right now how to have it. And the buffalo says, to practice patience, you need a real rascal to help you. It's no good practicing on gentle and kind creatures because they don't require any patience. What you need is a good monkey. Would you like to use mine? <laughs> monkey, that tease, if he tried his silly tricks on me, I'd show him some of mine. My friend, you see how hard patience is to practice, but you must keep trying, for it is indeed a magic charm. I, lear I learned to be patient by thinking about monkey. His teasing, this is a buffalo speaking, his teasing will surely get him in trouble. Sooner or later, he'll play a trick on some quick-tempered creature who will give him a bad scare or even a beating. Poor monkey. I also thought about how lonely monkey must be. None of the animals want to be around him. Everyone wishes he would go away. Poor monkey. I thought about then how confused he is. He relies on bad qualities instead of good ones, turning all his cleverness and energy into mean tricks. So I feel sorry for monkey, and I do not wish to cause him any more unhappiness. If I think it through the way you do, said the uh, sprite, maybe I can learn patience too. And then the forest sprite flew off to practice the wonderful new charm called patience. Just then, Monkey, who had been hiding in the trees, listening to every word, came up to Buffalo. I did not know I had such a good friend. I did not think I had any friends at all. How kind and strong you are to be patient with a monkey like me. Please forgive me for teasing and playing mean tricks and let me be your friend. If you think of all beings as your friends, tricks and teasing can do you no harm. For your heart is pet protected by patience, and patience works like a charm. 
They see the monkey is offering the buffalo a whole bunch of nice greens, I guess, to eat. So that's it. You will feel better. You will feel happy. And the world will get nicer. So thank you very much. For everybody who hasn't been here before, I'm happy you were here. Come again. Donald will be here next week, all fresh with insights from his retreat. And I'll be here the week after. May we all be a part of causing the world to be happier and more peaceful. I like it down here. I think it's a good idea to stay down here. I just wanted to let you know I went over and saw Claire last night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.